welcome to our iteration of the Cyber Threat Briefing. So today we're going to be talking about an organization's susceptibility to supply chain attacks. I'm joined as usual by Hugh, one of our senior cybersecurity consultants. So Hugh, I guess we'll get straight into it. Why is susceptibility through the supply chain such a key issue for organizations? We're hearing a lot about it at the moment. There's been lots of recent breaches that have been related back to supply chain. You know, as an attacker, why, why am I interested in that? And, and ultimately, what am I targeting? Yeah, so you're right. It's been huge in the last couple of years. I think that's probably down to a large extent, the fact that organizations generally are getting a lot more mature in their cyber controls. They're a lot more, more difficult to penetrate themselves. And so threat actors are looking for uh, an easier route in and the supply chain potentially offers that easier route in as well as a much more significant payoff. So in, instead of going for you know, your typical target, you'd have a look and, and see who's going to be in the supply chain for that. And typically there, you know, I guess the best example would be sort of a large software based, a software company where, where you know, some software is the product. If you're an attacker and you're able to, to compromise that software developer, then instead of just compromising one company, you're then potentially able to you know, modify the code get that released out to that software developer's uh, clients. And then you've compromised, you know, potentially tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different organizations. So it's really, you know, they only have to do the hard work once. And then that payoff is sort of, you know, multiplied across each of their customers, you know, which is obviously really, really good because it's just so easy to then repeat that attack and go through the entire list of of customers basically and, and get what you want out of it. Great. So that, that's really interesting to me. I, I guess if I'm an attacker, um, am I going to be looking at supply chain first or am I going to look at the target first and work backwards? What's my primary focus? What am I looking for? And, and ultimately, how am I going to exploit it? It really depends on the motive. We're seeing a lot of these supply chain attacks um, organized by the APTs, Advanced Persistent Threats. And so these guys, as we've mentioned in a previous um, threat briefing, they've sometimes got their political motives as well. So a really big one at the minute that I expect we'll soon see some difficulties with is energy, oil and gas. So, you know, if, if you've got a political motive there trying to get into the, the oil and gas supply for the UK, you know, that could that could have real significant ramifications. But then obviously you, you then you've got the more financially motivated attackers who might, you know, they'll identify a supplier whose clients are generally going to be of interest. So yeah, like big software houses releasing to maybe financial a financial services product then the the organizations that are going to be using that software are going to be aligned to their goals so i guess from my perspective the key here is dependencies um i think a lot of organizations these days are dependent on outsourcing models where you know we're reliant on third parties to provide key parts of our you know critical infrastructure or, or supporting you know, the the development or delivery of our products and services. So I guess you mentioned earlier about, you know, that attacker's path of least resistance. Do you think it's fair that, you know, our supply chain is becoming more critical to us now? So the reliance on that is leaving us more susceptible to these types of attacks? Yeah, absolutely. I I think we probably need to have a slight shift in the way we're thinking about things. Obviously, we, we spend a great deal of effort building up these relationships with our suppliers and our partners. But I think it's important to maintain that distance from a physical sort of network level perspective and just assume zero trust, basically, regardless of of your commercial relationship. Because 
at the end of the day, your assurance sort of ends at your boundary. That's the control you have. And so it's it's really important that you plan and uh, you know acknowledge the risk of the worst case scenario. Yeah, I think that's quite a key point for me. I mean, obviously, there are things that we're directly in control of that we can be a little bit more confident and assured of the controls that we're putting in place. I guess when we then start to distribute some of those responsibilities out to third parties, to some degree, we have to rely on different types of controls to you know, enforce security, whether it be sort of contractual terms or you know, whether we're bringing individuals from that organization into our own control framework, such as you know, remote access and you know, user controls. So I guess I can see why it's important to, for an attacker to look at targeting that. But I guess from my perspective, if I'm an organization looking at this, you know, where does this change my perception of the threat landscape or the attack surface? You know, how do I think about extending controls that I've got out into the supply chain? Is that fully dependent on the type of service that I'm buying? Or do you think there are some fundamental things that organizations can do to protect themselves? So I, I think it probably really does depend on who you're dealing with. If you are procuring a large software solution or something like that, I think it could be reasonable to ask them for evidence of their own sort of due diligence, really, around their supply chain and the risks they face. I think another really, uh, really important avenue that can often be overlooked is these really small suppliers, recruitment firms, um, agencies, things like that. I think they're a really important avenue to consider as well, because some of these companies are maybe two or three individuals they're unlikely to have that policy, that level of sort of maturity to have taken these steps. Yet we're still expecting and accepting, you know, CVs, Word documents, potentially with active content and that sort of thing, arriving to a file Dropbox sort of thing, where we're just going to be happy to take that, open it, read it, check it out. And obviously things like CVs are really important because they're going to you know, people in senior leadership team, they're going to HR, they're going to finance. All of these individuals are really high value targets. And you can't go and ask a recruitment company to provide you their sort of supply chain audits and due diligence measures, because realistically, some suppliers of that size aren't just, just aren't going to have these. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, a lot of this comes down to sensitivity, doesn't it? And, and the type of service or, or product that we're buying in. So it sounds like a lot of this, um, you know, certainly from my experience, goes back to good risk management, which you know sounds very simple, but becomes a bit more difficult when obviously the things we're trying to manage are, are almost at arm's length, as we mentioned earlier, through different controls. So I guess this would be a good opportunity to launch our poll, which our interest, I guess, from everybody attending is whether you've undertaken an assessment of your supply chain and, and equally, you know, where you think that maturity is. So there's there's quite a few options for you. And I want to come back to that in a minute because um, we're going to talk a bit about how an attacker will, will kind of target the supply chain. So I'll launch that poll now. But Hugh, from your perspective, if you looked at this from an attacker's viewpoint, you know, what are the type of attacks that, that an attacker would use in order to compromise the supply chain? Yeah. So I guess a really common one would be, you know, a phishing attack or something like that. A lot of recent supply chain attacks have been, you know, phishing based, where you then just gain access to an individual in an organization and then sort of hopscotch around different devices that you can access, dumping credentials from memory until you're onto a machine that's got access to potentially, you know, um, source code repositories. And from there, uh, you know, the game is on. You can uh, make those modifications to the code and potentially 
introduce that, that vulnerability uh, into the supply chain. Yeah. Okay. So this comes back to your zero trust comment, really, doesn't it? And you know, I think certainly within some of the organisations I go into, uh, I think you know we we have really good relationships with uh, parties that we rely on for critical services, and and to some degree we kind of treat them the same as our own sort of in-house employees. Um, I guess from what you've just said, that actually leaves us a bit more susceptible enforcing security controls through trust is obviously not a good position to be in. So if you were obviously looking at an organization, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're going to be harvesting credentials to use in kind of other types of attacks. You know, what other things could you do with some of the connectivity that we have in from third parties these days? There's a lot that can be done, right? And it, obviously it depends on the service. Recent supply chain attacks have included things like multi-factor authentication codes, which if you can capture the the seeds that reduce these rolling codes, then obviously that's huge. And things like that are used by um, you know, multiple government agencies. Basically, you then need to recall the entire deployment of this multi-factor authentication and reproduce them, which is obviously you know, a really huge impact. Other things you can do you know, with cloud services and things like that, you could potentially then start, once you gain access to maybe a cloud provider, you can then launch environments and, and spin up resources potentially in, you know, in, in that victim's environment, depending on their logging and monitoring within that environment, they might not initially identify that. That then provides you a great sort of landing spot for when you're going around the internet pilfering data. You've just got that, that point to egress to and collect that. So it never really comes back to you. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, so we just posted a link to one of the threat reports that we refer to quite often from a company called Anisa. There's lots of information around there around sort of the threat landscape that relates to supply chain attacks. Um, if you're interested in a bit more information, it's quite a, a graphical type report that, that gives you some, some useful facts and figures. I guess, is there anything, Hugh, that you want to pull out of that specifically at this point or, you know, happy to talk a bit more about what an organisation can do to protect itself? I think the one thing that surprised me from the Anisa report was that they say it's 66% of supply chain attacks actually go after that, that source code. So that's really showing you the types of organizations that are being targeted and where the big risks lie. And I guess it's also, that makes sense really, doesn't it, that most companies are using some sort of software to get their jobs done and they're a big part of the supply chain. So, you know, it's just one to think about really. Yeah, and I think, again, when we're thinking about these centralized risk models, actually considering those risks from external suppliers and third parties and you know bringing those into our, our general fold of things, there are certain things that we'd um, want to consider. And interestingly, somebody's just posted a, a question that, that I think is always interesting through diligence process, which is, you know, should I insist on a pen test of my suppliers before I look at potentially integrating them? Um, you know, in my experience, organizations are not necessarily willing to share the pen test reports themselves, but you know, maybe a summary of some of the findings and, and what they're doing to mitigate those from a risk perspective. Uh, I mean, what, what's your experience, Hugh? I mean, have your reports been used to demonstrate sort of levels of security going into supplier due diligence? Yeah, so I think it's like you say, it's uncommon to hand out a full pen test report unredacted because you know that's that's gold dust to a potential attacker. All the work's done for them. All they have got to do is uh, replicate the steps listed, you know, neatly in the report. A few clients I've dealt with have asked for attestation letters. So just to say, you know, this has been reviewed and this is a brief summary of any issues that were found. 
typically clients are, are happier to request those when nothing's found. But, you know, we do occasionally get it when there are a few. And certainly a letter like that can be really useful when you're in that process. But I don't think it would be a not a golden bullet. It wouldn't replace all of the other, you know, reasonable due diligence that you'd expect. Because obviously, as with everything else, you know, a pen test report is it's a point in time assessment. It was only valid, you know, for the, the second it was issued. And, you know, especially with things like the supply chain, suppliers change really regularly. If you audit once, uh, maybe, uh, you know, when you're onboarding that supplier, nothing's to say that their supply chain hasn't then changed two weeks after that. Yeah, I think that's a really strong point. So I think the answer to that question is, you know, maybe it's it's not sensible to insist on pen test reports. But I think if the service that that's being provided, you're looking at integration points, then, you know, it's reasonable to expect that third party to give you some confidence and assurance that they've been through some kind of testing regime to demonstrate that their software or, or whatever service they're providing is secure and isn't going to have any kind of undue impact on, on your own infrastructure which I guess then comes back to risk management again, doesn't it? Where you're considering the the outputs of, of that assurance and, and looking at whether there is a potential impact to your own environments for that integration, um, as an example. Interesting, that's that's moved on to another question around supplier compromise. Um, I think this is always uh, you know, a really important point. So, Hugh, what, what can organisations be doing to manage um, breaches and, and potential incidents um, in the supply chain? How does that work? I think the most important thing, and, and this works both ways, is that ongoing dialogue. So whether you're compromised or you know a supplier's compromised, I think the most important thing is being upfront and being honest. So hopefully your supplier would come to you and say, look, it's not good news, but this is the situation as we understand it. And that should arm you with the information that you need to then go away and you know make sure that any data that you might have been yours that's been taken you can deal with that and you can look to prevent any further damage to your own organization. And obviously that then goes the same way. If you're compromised and you're providing services to another organization, really important that you are forthcoming with that information because uh, the longer you wait, the worse it gets for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen some good examples of, of where sort of bad incident management has, has caused, you know, potentially a much bigger problem than it needed to be. Uh, I think the other thing that goes with this is obviously the relationship part of the due diligence and onboarding and, and our sort of continuous assessment of that service is being delivered, you know, incident management should be one of those key focus areas that we're considering through that process as well. So, you know, we'd like to think that, you know, we've got specific expectations laid out within uh, either the service definition document or the contract and, you know, that we're plugged into, you know, our suppliers process and equally they, they've got, um, you know, plugs into ours as well. So uh, I think, you know, if the supply is compromised, you should have a joint approach to that. You should be forthcoming with, uh, you know, managing that incident together, making sure that, you know, you're identifying some of the fundamental things, you know, going through triage, containment, response and recovery activities, um, you know, having shared incident response procedures, if this is part of critical service, would be beneficial as well. So I think there's lots of things that you can do if a supply is compromised. Hopefully you'd be identifying that fairly early on through the relationship and you know that process happens organically based on the the level of service that's being provided by your third party as well um so just before we talk on to some of the defensive controls i guess just summarize the poll question so we asked whether you've undertaken a risk assessment of your supply chain pleased to see that you know nobody has responded with no we haven't i think you know had i asked that question 
uh, probably a couple of years ago. We might have had a few options um, coming up there. The majority of people, so 44% of people have conducted it at onboarding. So when they've established a supply relationship, there's a, a few people then that, that do it annually and, and on a risk-based process. But incidentally, nearly 30% of people have also answered they do it on a continuous cycle. You know, all the things that we've just been talking about, that susceptibility is mitigated, in my view, by uh, the level of maturity of how we're managing third parties and you know, how we're ultimately you know, managing the risks associated with those services that are being provided as well. So um, it's good to see that, that people are moving on to that more mature kind of continuous process of assessing their third parties. And incidentally, somebody's just asked a question about sort of identifying the, the, the various tiers within sort of your supply chain. Um, and I think that's a really important thing, because if you're trying to manage security for low risk suppliers through to high risk suppliers in exactly the same way, you're going to spend a lot of effort and time on things that aren't necessarily going to give you comfort. Uh, you know, we should assess our third parties and we should tier them. That helps us to focus um, on the ones that are most riskiest to us. And also gives us then, uh, you know, more confidence that we're managing risks in the right places, um, which will enable us to go through the process of that ongoing security assessment and validation as well. And so in terms of identifying tier two and three suppliers, you know, I, I think the, the lower level ones uh, will happen organically. I think ones that are delivering more critical services to the business. I think those will naturally require a greater level of validation. So typically for kind of tier two suppliers, we'd be seeing some level of formal response to a questionnaire with potentially some validation of evidence that's provided to give some, some comfort that things are actually in place through to tier one suppliers where, you know, maybe we're, we're looking for a more formal audit of their compliance. So I think it's interesting to see how that relates to some of the, the responses to the poll as well. Obviously, if you're conducting you know, onboarding assessments for when a supplier comes into the organization, I think it's interesting to see then over a period of time whether there are changes to that service that are maybe not being picked up. So maybe something to think about there is, is looking at you know, tiers for some of those in terms of the ones that you would want to have more regular assurance from, you know, maybe moving towards this more continuous cycle for ones that are absolutely critical for your business. Um, so I think moving on from that then, Hugh, what, what are some of the simple things that organisations can do to protect themselves from supply chain attacks? I think in either technology or, or process-based, I'm, I know we've talked about risk assessments and due diligence, but ultimately, what can we do to stay in control of our supply chain? From a technology standpoint, it is quite difficult, you know, by virtue of the fact that it is the supply chain and it's not yourself, not your own organization that you're dealing with. With the people in the process, yeah, it's a bit easier. Um, it's having those regular discussions with your suppliers, understanding, you know, the problems they're facing, any, you know, anything that they might have experienced and how that can impact you. But there definitely are some things we can do ourselves. You know, if we've got good sort of seam installations, then we should be able to build up that pattern of regular sort of traffic that we would expect coming in to and from this supplier. You know, typically it's going to be the same sort of data that's going both ways. If anything changes, that's potentially an indication that something's changed, right? The, the data's different. And so that, you know, that could be a good indication that a threat actor is, you know, using that route into your organization through the supply chain. Yeah, so I think the beginning of this process is obviously around due diligence and around having a managed um, approach to dealing with our suppliers that align to our business risk processes as well. 
from a technology perspective, then how would we extend some of these services practically? Is it worth extending things like logging and monitoring to all of our suppliers? Or you know, are we going to be using that data that we're collecting through our risk program or our risk-based third-party management program to actually decide which ones are worthy of monitoring? How would we approach this? Because I guess we don't want people to be running away and you know focusing a lot of time and effort on things that are not going to give them sort of direct returns. So how can we make the best use of the technologies we've got and focus those on on where maybe our most significant risks are? Yeah, so I think obviously, as with all sort of logging and monitoring, you do run the risk of overloading yourself with information or with data, and then you, know, you can't make sense of that. So it goes back to sort of basic risk management, really, and identification of the crown jewels, what information is you know highly sensitive, what do you really need to be protecting? identifying the suppliers that can be you know in- interfacing with that data and focusing efforts there it's a tough game because you might say okay when i'm looking at you know microsoft amazon google as suppliers oh i'm sure they take their security really seriously but also there's the huge impact right of they're going to be really high value targets for threat actors as well so they're also the organizations that are going to be most targeted so it's it's really a balancing act between establishing which of your suppliers is basically going to be the most impactful, not just for you, but for you know the industry as a whole, basically. Yeah, so I think having this robust program is the first step. Um, understanding uh, risk is obviously a key part of that, but is a logical next step from that as well, leading into the extension of some of our existing controls. What about security culture, Hugh? How about dealing with the people side of this? It's fair to say that we work with uh, parties who become you know, very trusted, very ingrained in, in our business as usual to the point that we would treat them as employees. Um, do we ever get to the point where you know, third parties become a, a very kind of augmented version of our existing in-house teams? And, and how should we really approach those? What susceptibility do we have outside of the obvious ones? You know, do we bring in the risk of, of like an insider type attack at that point? I think it can be really difficult when you get to that point, can't it? Because we build up relationships with individuals we work with and it can be quite a difficult discussion to say, okay, actually, I need you to prove to me that you've taken this seriously and put your cards on the table and show me your security credentials. But I think we need to sort of understand and accept between ourselves that that is a necessary step, right? It's not rude to ask a supplier to you know, demonstrate due diligence. And I think it's a conversation we need to be having because, yeah, like you said, it can get to the point where you're almost integrating with these third parties without any of the assurance that you'd have if they were you know, internally resourced. And yeah, hopefully, you know, that's going to be perfectly fine. And, and your partner will probably have done similar onboarding and due diligence practices. But like we mentioned earlier, with these you know, smaller companies that really can't manage that, it's a really difficult thing to consider and really important how much sort of freedom basically are we giving these third parties to operate within our environments? Yeah, so I think if we were going to summarize this then, Hugh, I guess for the first point, there is you know, quite a susceptibility through the supply chain if we haven't established you know, relevant governance processes and you know, that we're taking a, a kind of risk-based view of those, um, you know, and, and that susceptibility can be built out of the trust and the dependencies that we map in with our third parties um, as well. And I guess, you know, you've given a number of good examples of why the supply chain is, is a good attack route for an attacker. 
you've got this element of trust, you've got potentially less focus, you may have some level of, of lower maturity through some of that, or, or maybe a misrepresentation of the risks associated with those third parties. But there are some simple things that organizations can do to protect themselves. So, you know, actually understanding critical services within their supply chain, you know, having a good, solid, robust program, understanding what controls they have in place that can be extended to third parties, you know, and, and applying those in a, in a kind of consistent and continuous manner. Is there anything else that, that I guess is worth raising at this point outside of maybe going to have a look at the ANISA report that we've linked? No, I think, you know, these, those are some really good things we can consider. And, you know, I guess, as we mentioned before, I think moving towards the zero trust model, it solves a lot of problems. It's not just applicable to you know, supply chain, but it serves to fix a lot of the problems we're talking about here with these integrations into our organization. Excellent. Thanks, Hugh. Um, So I guess at this point, we'll draw that to a close if nobody's got any more questions. Thank you all for attending. Hugh and I can both be contacted through social media if you're interested in having a follow-on discussion about any of the areas we've talked about. Go and have a look at the ANISA Threat Landscape Report if it's of interest to you. Um, It provides some really good kind of structured information about sort of why managing you know risks in your supply chain is is important and you know hopefully you can start to you know improve some of the areas that will leave you less susceptible to supply chain attacks otherwise you know both you and i wish you a good afternoon and hopefully um see you at our next briefing <laughs>